And we come now to the, the seventh talk in this series that we're doing on the whole subject of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in fact tonight we're going to have a slight digression and I'll explain the reason why. We've got another study next week relating directly to the gifts themselves. But then what we're going to do is to move on and cover two other subjects. The reason being that in Corinthians, when Paul deals with the gifts of the Spirit, he doesn't do so in isolation. He gives the teaching about the gifts of the Spirit in the context of two other things. And it's the teaching about fellowship and what it means to be part of a church and also the context of love, what love means amongst us, God's love, our love for each other. And so we can't deal with the gifts of the Spirit in isolation. To do so would give a false picture. And so we're going to be moving on to that in a couple of studies' time. And you'll in fact realise by the time we get to the last talk that this series will have been a breakdown of 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. Now there's only one bit in 1 Corinthians 12 that we're not going to cover and that's a few verses when Paul deals with ministries of the Spirit as opposed to the gifts of the Spirit. That is outside our scope for this series, maybe some other time. But apart from the thing about ministries, we're going to be covering the whole lot. And so therefore, for the sake of completeness, tonight we've got to tackle what I call the difficult bits in 1 Corinthians 14. Because there are two sections in 1 Corinthians 14 which make people scratch their heads and they think, my goodness, what on earth does that mean? And so tonight, that is precisely what we're going to do. We're going to have a look at them. Now there are two, <coughs> and uh, before, uh, just, just find verse, verse 20, because Paul introduces these difficult subjects, and look what he says in verse 20. He says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Be babes in evil, but in thinking be mature. Uh, I think there's one translation where it translates it where he says, in understanding, be men. And I like that. Paul wasn't afraid to get people doing some difficult stuff, okay? And here he says to them, now look, you know, come on please, both brain cells at the same time, all right? So that's what it's got to be tonight. It's got to be thinking caps on, a little bit technical, but I think you'll see that uh, it's all fairly straightforward. Now then, uh, two bits as I say, but we'll take... Um, we'll do the first one. Go to verse 21, okay? And this is the first bit. Now Paul says this, In the law it is written... Now, the phrase in the law, it just means the Old Testament, lock, stock, and barrel, right? And in fact, we're going to see that this bit of the law was in Isaiah. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church assembles and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say to you that you are mad? But if you prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted of all. Now, what I want you to do is to actually see the problem there. Look, verse 22, he says thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, in verse 22, what he's saying is this, that tongues, the gift of tongues, is acting as a sign for unbelievers and not prophecy. Can you see that in verse 22? He's saying that tongues is a sign for unbelievers, but prophecy isn't, all right? But then, in verse 23, he says exactly the opposite. And he says, if therefore the whole church assembles and all speak in tongues and outsiders enter, they'll think you're all mad. And then he goes on to say, they need prophecy. 
So in verse 22, Paul says, look, tongues are a sign for unbelievers, prophecy isn't. And then in verse 23, and you've got to get the background here, remember that on the tongues issue, we've covered this, that Paul was correcting the abuse of personal tongues. Do you remember we saw that there are two types of tongues? There's your own personal tongue between you and God, but there is a ministry or a gift of tongues which is used in public and then it's always followed by an interpretation. The tongue, it's a public tongue being useless unless it's interpreted, all right? And what was happening in Corinth is everyone was standing off and, you know, sort of blasting out with their own personal tongues, and it was just an abuse of it. Interpretations weren't coming through, they were getting it all mucked up. So in verse 23, he's saying, now look, don't, don't do this, don't keep speaking in uninterpreted tongues, because if you do, uh, that's no good for unbelievers, they need prophecy. So can you see the contradiction in those two verses? I'll go through it once more, you've got to get it. In verse 22, he says, tongues is a sign for unbelievers, but prophecy isn't. In verse 23, he says, slow down on the tongues, because that's no good for unbelievers, they need prophecy. Now, can you see in your mind this kind of contradiction? In the space of two verses, Paul seems uh, to be saying the opposite thing. Now, in order to understand this, the key is quite simply this. You have to realize, and we're going to see, that at this particular juncture in the history of the church, it's true to a certain extent today, but not so much, there were two different types of unbeliever. And they were quite distinct from each other and not to be confused. And you see, what we're going to be seeing tonight, and we've covered this so many times in prior studies, is the uniqueness in the New Testament of Israel. All right, the absolute unique position that Israel held in God's plan. And I'm going to show you that there are two types of unbeliever that Paul is talking about here. One type are the Jews who were unbelievers, and the other type were the Gentiles who were unbelievers. And in fact, this apparent contradiction is because Paul is giving a different set of rules for each type of unbeliever. Now, in order to understand this more, go to the Gospel of Matthew, all right? <coughs> Find Matthew and chapter 21. And we're going to read one of Jesus' parables. Find verse 33. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, here a parable. There was a householder who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to tenants and went into another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? <clears throat> and they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. Now let's go through that parable and get it exactly right. In verse 33, Jesus is talking about a vineyard. Now, what is this vineyard? Keep your finger in the Matthew, but go to Isaiah chapter 5. 
Isaiah chapter 5. Start reading from verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He digged it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. That's right, that's what it says in my version. He digged it, all right? He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And then go to verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So immediately, keep your finger in Isaiah 5 and go back to Matthew. So immediately here, in verse 33, we can see that the vineyard that Jesus is talking about is the nation of Israel itself. Now then, verse 34, when the season of fruit drew near. What's the season of fruit? The whole point of God calling Israel as a nation to himself was that one day he wanted to establish his kingdom on earth where Jesus would rule on the earth quite physically and literally and that Israel would be the nation through whom Jesus did this and so throughout the Old Testament the whole time you've got the drawing near of the establishing of the kingdom of God let's read verse 35 again and it says, And the tenants took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. What you've got here is that you've got the fact that Israel, throughout the Old Testament, had constantly rejected the Old Testament prophets. Because the Old Testament prophets came with one message only, repent and get right with God. Remember, the Jews got into the habit of thinking that because they were Jews, they were right with God full stop. And of course, that wasn't true. And so the prophets, God kept sending prophets to bring Israel to repentance and to really begin to live in faith and dependence on the Lord. But they wouldn't. And these prophets went right up to John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And then in verse 37 to 39, you've got afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. And then what happens is that, that the tenants of the vineyard, they kill the son of the person who owns the vineyard. <coughs> and there you have Jesus prophesying the fact that his ministry was going to be totally rejected by Israel, which he was, all right? So the point is, Jesus came to Israel to establish the kingdom, but he couldn't do so because Israel rejected him. And then when you get uh, in verse 43, it's got, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. And here you have the fact that God said, right, Israel is not going to accept Jesus as its Messiah. They have rejected my son, therefore I am going to reject them. And what's happened is that the kingdom is here being given to the Gentiles. And of course the church is a largely Gentile affair. So what we're seeing here is the prophecy of Jesus that because of their rejection of him as a nation, that therefore they would be replaced by the church, by the Gentiles, and that the kingdom would be given to the Gentiles instead of to Israel. Go back to Isaiah chapter 5, the second part of verse 2, and it says, And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Can you see the season of fruit drawing near? Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. And there you see a prophecy, even in Isaiah, prophesying the fact that because Israel was going to reject Jesus, God would reject Israel as being his people, and the kingdom would be taken from them, given to the Gentiles, 
And the church, which is a largely Gentile affair, has now replaced Israel. The kingdom is now given to us. It has been taken from Israel. But this state of affairs is only temporary. Go to Romans 11. Romans chapter 11, we'll just read some verses. First of all, verse 11. And Paul says, and he's speaking about Israel, he says, So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Go down to 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And down into verse 24, and he says, For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand, brethren, a hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So then, what we've got is this, thus far. Israel rejected their Messiah. Jesus was the wrong kind of God for them. He wasn't the God they were used to. He kind of kept upsetting them, said things that they couldn't believe in. So Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Now, because they did that as a nation, as a nation, they came under God's judgment. And the vineyard of Israel was trampled. And of course, in AD 70, Jerusalem itself was completely devastated by the Roman troops under General Titus. Because Israel rejected Jesus, the kingdom was therefore taken from Israel as God's people and given instead to the Gentiles, the church. That's us. <coughs> However, after the rapture of the church, when we all go back to heaven, it is then that Israel is going to be grafted back in again. All right? They will re-evangelize the world and that salvation will come to the world through Israel as it was always supposed to have done. All right? And then after the second coming, you have the thousand-year reign of Jesus and that is the literal Jewish kingdom on earth. The millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus is a Jewish affair. Jesus will be ruling the earth personally and he will be doing so from the nation of Israel. And that thousand-year reign of Jesus is the final fulfillment of the myriad of Old Testament promises to Israel that haven't yet been fulfilled. But the fulfillment of all those promises have been postponed because Israel refused to accept Jesus as their Messiah. All right. Now, it was that rejection, the Jews rejecting Jesus, that was the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And them being cut out of God's plan, them being laid aside and replaced temporarily by the church, was the punishment or the judgment that God put on them because of that. So what we've got here is that, all right, Israel as a nation was rejected by God because they rejected Jesus. At the time that the early church was flourishing, at the time that Paul the Apostle wrote Corinthians, Israel had had it temporarily as far as the kingdom was concerned. As a nation, God had finished with them and will remain finished with them in that sense until the rapture of the church when Israel will once more be grafted back in. So Israel as a nation for the time being has had it. However, 
Individual Jews could, of course, become Christians at any time. Can you see what I'm saying? Israel as a nation rejected Jesus, therefore Israel as a nation was rejected by God, and as a nation had the kingdom taken from them. But any Jew, individually, who turned to Jesus, could still be saved. <clears throat> and what would happen for them, therefore, is that although the literal kingdom of God the Israeli kingdom of God has been temporarily taken away from them and that's been postponed now till after the second coming even though the literal kingdom is now postponed any individual Jew who became a Christian could receive the kingdom of God in their hearts can you see the big difference between us as the church and Israel is that Israel is going to have a literal kingdom Whereas for us, as the church, the kingdom is within our hearts. The kingdom is that we are living under the lordship of Jesus himself. This is the reason why in the teaching of Jesus you get some things which indicates that the kingdom of God is going to come with signs. And then on another place, Jesus said, uh, the kingdom, you know, don't say it's low here or low there, because the kingdom is within you. Can you see? The literal kingdom coming with signs has been postponed until the second coming. Now the kingdom of God is received in our hearts simply because we, as believers, and together, as the Church of Jesus Christ, are living under the rule of Jesus. So therefore, any Jew could still enter the kingdom if they became saved, but it was going to be a different type of kingdom that was going to make do until the literal kingdom comes at the second coming of Jesus. Alright. Now then, this explains something else which kind of baffles people and it tells us why it was that Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah has that often punished you, you know sort of puzzled you when Jesus said that <laughs> he said when he was not punished you puzzled you that Jesus said when talking of John the Baptist he said if you can receive it he is Elijah now this can help us to understand why that is you see the thing is that the Old Testament in Micah made it very, very clear that before the Jewish kingdom of God is established on earth, Elijah would come to earth and continue his ministry. All right? And indeed, when Jesus came the first time, when he lived on earth as a man, during that time, Elijah did come at the transfiguration. All right? Elijah was literally standing on the earth with Jesus at a particular point. But of course the thing is, Elijah couldn't come and herald and bring in the kingdom of God because the Lord in his foreknowledge knew that Israel was going to reject Jesus and therefore the literal kingdom couldn't happen and can't happen until leading up to the second coming. So therefore Elijah's ministry on earth again has been postponed along with the coming of the kingdom. However, the point is that for any, and in fact during the Great Tribulation, when the two witnesses appear in Jerusalem for three and a half years, preaching to Israel the gospel until the second coming, that is Moses and Elijah. So Elijah will appear exactly as Micah says. But for any Jew who became a Christian at the time of the early church, and this would apply to any Jew who became a Christian now, at any point during the church age, then what Jesus was saying, he's saying, look, then let John the Baptist be your Elijah. Elijah comes to herald the literal coming of the kingdom, but the literal coming of the kingdom has been postponed now till the second coming. But the kingdom can still come in the heart of any Jew who submits to Jesus and becomes a Christian. Therefore, what Jesus was saying, therefore, to any Jew who got saved, John the Baptist is going to be your Elijah. Can you see that? It's John the Baptist who is going to usher in the kingdom, alright? Whereas one day before the literal kingdom comes at the second coming, Elijah will himself appear on the earth and continue the ministry that God called him to. So what we've got is quite simply this. 
we've got the fact that the kingdom has been taken from Israel. Alright? Now, the kingdom of God is going to be a literal, physical, earthly affair. And it's going to be an Israeli affair. And it's prophesied throughout the Old Testament. But because Israel rejected Jesus as being their Messiah, Jesus rejected Israel. Therefore, the kingdom cannot yet come because the kingdom is promised not to the church. The kingdom, the literal kingdom, is promised to Israel. All right. So Israel has been rejected by God and temporarily replaced by the church, by the Gentiles. But the kingdom of God manifests itself amongst us, not as a literal kingdom, but through our submission to Jesus as our king. And then when the church age is over, when Israel has been restored, then the literal kingdom will come. So the point is that Jews, at the time of Jesus and throughout the church age, they could receive the kingdom in their heart, but of course they have to wait until the second coming. We all have to wait until the second coming before the literal Jewish kingdom of God is actually established on the earth. So this is what we're dealing with. The rejection of Israel and them being replaced by the church. Alright. Now then, the thing is that God, because he's a God of grace, he always wants to give as many signs as possible to let people know what's going on. And that way back before the foundation of the world, God decided to have a specific sign just for Jews that confirmed to them the truth of everything I've said. Alright? So God gave Israel, in the Old Testament, he prophesied that there would be a particular sign of the fact that they had been rejected as a nation. And of course, that would prove to them that Jesus was their Messiah. And of course, all the time, God is wanting Jews to recognize that Jesus was their Messiah. And he gave Israel a specific sign just for them to prove that Jesus was Messiah and that the kingdom has been temporarily taken from Israel and given to the church. And would you believe what that sign is? That sign, and it's prophesied in the Old Testament, and we'll see it, is speaking in tongues. All right. Go back to 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 21. <clears throat> we read this earlier. When Paul says, In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me says the Lord now then what Paul is doing he is quoting part of a prophecy given to Israel through the prophet Isaiah in fact chapter 28 and verse 11 to 12 now we're going to be going to Isaiah in a minute but before you do go to Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 28 because I'm going to show you how it was that Israel would know that speaking in tongues was a sign just for them to show them that they'd blown the kingdom and therefore had better hurry up and accept the person they rejected i.e. Jesus All right. and in Deuteronomy 28 and we want verse 49 and we have this and it's one of the many signs of judgment against Israel that were prophesied. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you do not understand. Now, in the Old Testament, God gave prophecies that if Israel was going to fall out of fellowship with him, eventually they would be taken off into captivity. And of course, if a different nation carts you off, they don't speak your language. So in fact, foreign languages was established in the Old Testament as being a sign to Israel that they were under God's judgment and that God was calling them to repentance and calling them back to faithfulness. Now then, bearing that in mind, now go to Isaiah 28. 
we've seen that foreign languages are a sign to Israel of being under God's judgment. <coughs> Isaiah chapter 28. All right. Now we've already seen that in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul quotes a bit of it. All right. And it's verse 11 and 12. Nay, but by men of strange lips and with an alien tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. Now that was the bit that Paul quoted to the Corinthians when he wrote to them. Now then, <clears throat> first of all, verse 10. Now look at this. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now go down into verse 13. Therefore, the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now, that sounds a little bit nonsensical, doesn't it? And it sounds nonsensical for this reason. It's onomatopoeic, and it is in Hebrew as well as English. The point is, what is happening here is a bit of a play on words. Have you ever thought of any word, say carburetor, any word, all right, and it has a meaning? If you say, if you repeat it fast, it loses all meaning. For instance, carburetor, 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 carburetor. If you take any word and repeat it again and again and again, it loses its meaning, all right, and it becomes absolute double dutch. Now here, the, the idea of this, all right, is this. It's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Can you see? It's blah, 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 blah. It's absolute gobbledygook, all right? These sentences, the word of the Lord will be to them gobbledygook. You know, blah, 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 like that, all right? Because it, it doesn't make sense at all. Now, gobbledygook is exactly and precisely what speaking in tongues sounds like, doesn't it? Because any language you don't understand sounds like gobbledygook to you. Now, can you see that we're seeing here in the Old Testament that in it's subtle, subtle, but it's there, that tongues was actually prophesied that one day tongues was going to be the word of the Lord to Israel that they had rejected him. Look at the end of verse 13, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. That's what happened in AD 70, carted off by the Romans, practically destroyed. Can you see? And that what we've got here is the whole theme that prophecies in the Old Testament. That's, I mean, Israel wasn't going to know what these prophecies meant until tongues was happening. But once tongues was happening, Israel would know exactly what it was. They understood the sign of speaking in tongues, all right? And in fact, do you remember <coughs> in Matthew 21, Jesus quoted that thing about the cornerstone that's been rejected, all right? The stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. That prophecy is also in Isaiah 28, down in verse 16. So can you see all this is tied up? It's all prophesying the fact that because Israel was going to reject Jesus, the Lord was going to reject them, and the sign that they were under-rejected was going to be speaking in tongues. Therefore, when this prophesied sign came to being, they would know that Old Testament prophecy was being fulfilled. And if the prophecy that was being fulfilled was one that said, you're out of fellowship, God's rejected you, then they would know beyond any doubt at all it was because they rejected Jesus. It's a sign to persuade them, to give them every chance to yet accept that Jesus was their Messiah. So can you see, signs, a tongues, is a sign for Israel. Now then, go back to 1 Corinthians 14, and let's sort out exactly what Paul is saying here. All right. <clears throat> what he's telling them is that tongues... The gift of tongues is a sign to unbelieving Jews that Jesus is their Messiah. However, remember the problem in Corinth. Paul has been instructing them that there should never be a public, uninterpreted tongues. 
For the simple reason it doesn't make any sense. So what Paul is saying, look, the gift of tongues is certainly a sign for unbelievers. It's a sign for Jews, all right? However, if you keep using tongues without interpreting it, then any other unbelievers, the Gentile unbelievers, for whom tongues isn't a sign at all, they're going to think you're crazy. Because they're going to hear you talk in all these languages and they won't know what on earth you're saying. Therefore, by all means, have tongues, it's a sign to unbelieving Jews. But you must have interpretation. Otherwise, Gentile unbelievers will think you're absolutely mad. However, tongues and interpretation, they're no good to Gentiles. They're no sign to Gentiles. Gentiles need the gift of prophecy. Because as we saw when we did the gift of prophecy, one of the things that prophecy does, it discloses the secrets of men's heart and gets them convicted of sin and their need of Jesus. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying, now look, for heaven's sake, yeah, tongues is a sign to unbelieving Jews. But it must be done decently and in order, it must be interpreted, or the Gentiles are going to think you're nuts. However, tongues, interpreted or not, is not a lot of bottle for Gentile unbelievers. And remember, tongues is always prayer, praise or worship. Not a lot of bottle to unbelievers that, is it? You see? Then, you know, they need to hear the gospel. Therefore, unbelieving Gentiles, they don't need to hear tongues. That's meaningless to them, all right? They need to have the gift of prophecy, all right? So tongues was there to enforce the fact to any Jews who were coming, up, you know, in earshot of the church. It was there as yet another sign to prove to them that Jesus was their Messiah and to bring them to repentance, all right. So therefore, tongues was a sign to unbelieving Jews, but no good to Gentiles. But the Gentiles, they need the, the gift of prophecy because it disclosed their sinfulness and their need of Jesus. And that was God's sign to them, all right. So then, what Paul is saying is quite simply this. The abuse of personal tongues in public, i.e. the Corinthians, they were all speaking out loud in tongues without interpretation coming through. He says, look, the abuse of personal tongues in public has got to stop. Because if it doesn't, it's going to put off any Gentile, it's going to put any Gentile unbelievers off. Because they think you're going to be absolutely nuts, all right? It's going to be crazy, all right? So... Uninterpreted tongues would make the Gentiles think they were mad, okay? However, tongues were still needed because tongues was a sign to unbelieving Jews. Therefore, what Paul is exhorting them to do is quite simply this. As long as you've got tongues which are being properly interpreted, that will convict Jews, all right? And because it's being interpreted, Gentiles won't think you're crazy. However, tongues and interpretation is no good for Gentiles whatsoever. It's meaningless to them. The sign for them is the gift of prophecy. All right. Because the gift of prophecy will convict them of their need of Jesus. So for a Jew, speaking in tongues convicted them of the fact that they had rejected Jesus. But no good from, uh, for Gentiles. But for a Gentile... When they went, to, you know, along to the church and there were prophecies detailing the state of their heart, boy, that convicted them of their need of Jesus and that was the sign that God uh, gave them so they could know who Jesus was. So can you see it? It's not a contradiction. Let's just go through it one more time, all right? Verse 22. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, all right? So tongues is a sign for unbelieving Jews, all right? While prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church assembles and all speak in tongues and outsider unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. So can you see different signs for different types of people? because the Jews and the Gentiles are absolutely separate in God's mind, and God has given different signs for them, all right? So I hope that clears that one up, all right? It's not a contradiction at all. Now you understand what it does mean. Right, um, 
well let's uh let's let's move on now to um to the second one and if you uh go go uh towards the end of the chapter and we're going to start reading from the um second second part of verse 33 and paul says this as in all the congregations of the saints women should remain silent in the churches they are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says if they want to inquire about something they should ask their own husbands at home for it is a dis for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church now what we've got to do in order to understand this properly is just remind ourselves of the context of what Paul is actually talking about. This, this whole section from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 through to the end of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is actually specifically dealing with problems that have arisen in the Corinthian church pertaining to when they came together as a church um, on, on, on Sundays, on the first day of the week. Now, what we've got to understand is that when the early church came together, and indeed this is, this is why we function as a church in the way that we do, remember that when, when the early churches came together, um, they, they, they met in a house, each church was small, um, and of course they didn't need anything other than houses to meet in because the idea was that each church should be small. They didn't want to get big, 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 big churches. And uh, so when a church was too big for one house, it would become two, two churches. And of course, the reason um, that, that, you know, that all they needed were houses was because the small numbers were necessary in order for them to meet in the way that the apostles taught them. And of course, when they came together, a church would meet in someone's house just in the their, their lounge and it's important to realize they had nothing like services I, I mean there were no services in the early church when they came together if you go back into verse 26 he says what should we say then brothers when you come together everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction etc etc and of course the point was that they had a time of sharing together that was wide open no one led it um, no one led from the front because there wasn't a front to lead from. They were just sitting around looking at each other. And I would have this time with everyone free to take part as the Spirit led them. So this was, this was open. It was completely participatory. There, there were ground rules, of course. It wasn't a free-for-all. But the point was it wasn't a service in a special building with someone up the front leading it. Nothing like that at all. And, of course, the other thing that the churches did when they came together was they had the Lord's Supper or the love feast and they had a meal together and again this is why we meet on Sundays in the way that we do as a fellowship in houses uh, wide open you know no one leads it. it's not a service all free to take part and we have a meal together and so we must understand that that is the context into which Paul is writing here. So when he's talking about this thing about as in all the congregations or all the assemblies of the saints, all the churches, women should remain silent, what he's talking, the context is that gathering with, with every, you know, no one leading it but people free to take part. And so if Paul is saying that the women should be silent, then, then he's talking about in regards to that context. So therefore, that would mean um, that, 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 that in a biblical church, i.e. a church when it comes together based on what Scripture teaches rather than all the traditions and practices that came later on, then during this, this sharing time with each one free to take part, it would only include the men. Okay. Now, that, that is the understanding of, uh, of, of some people. And uh, so I just want to to have a look at it and say, right, is, is it the case that when we come together on, on the Sundays, is Paul saying that the women shouldn't take verbal part? Well, I'll say up front that my, my own understanding is that that isn't the case, and um, I, I, I actually explain why. Now, if, if you go back to, back to uh, 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it, it's important for us to answer the question, at what point in the Corinthian letter does Paul turn to this whole issue of the abuses of the Lord's Day? The Lord's Supper, um, you know, the, the, the abuse of the gifts of the Spirit when the church comes together, um, all, all this kind of stuff. At what point in the letter does he finish dealing with other things and then move on to it? Well, interestingly, if you go to... to chapter 10 and I, I I want to try and demonstrate to you that Paul 
begins his treatment of matters pertaining to when the church comes together on Sundays in chapter 10. Because what he does, we haven't got time uh, to read it, but what he does is, is he takes them back, he reminds them of the episode in Israel's history when Moses was getting the, the, the commandments on Mount Sinai and Israel below, they, they had this, this, this feast and they were immoral and they got drunk and stuff and they did this thing with the golden calf. And, and, and Paul takes them back to that and in verse 11 he says, look, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. And of course the point that he was making is that when Israel did that, the Lord judged them and, 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 and some of them actually died. You know, the, the Lord killed them, that was his judgment on them. And of course what it leads up to is that when you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul specifically turns to issues concerning, you know, sort of like the actual love feast, we find that because they were abusing the love feast, that they were being selfish and, you know, they weren't sharing the meal properly and there were all manner of, 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 of problems in that regard. But, but he, he actually says, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. I, I died, the sin unto death. And so, therefore, that obviously makes me think that it's in 1 Corinthians 10 that Paul is beginning his treatment of the problems surrounding their coming together on, on the Lord's Day. And further to that, in chapter 10 as well, in verses 14 down to verse 22, we, we get these, these verses that are so well known when he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we are many, or one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Now, obviously here... And I mean, scrub communion services. There, there weren't communion services in, in the early church. They would have a loaf of bread, they would have a cup of wine, and they would share that together in the context of eating a normal meal together. And what Paul goes on to say to them now is, look, you can't, you can't partake of the table of demons and come and partake in the table of the Lord. And part of the problem was that in the Corinthian church, in Corinth, there was this, this big temple, idolatrous temple, and the worship there was the temple of Aphrodite, and the worship there included sex with the priestesses. Basically, the priestesses were prostitutes. And, and it was terrible, and their love feasts, and re, you know, remember, love feasts were quite common in the ancient world. That, that wasn't something that was, was, was merely preserve the preserve of the early church. And, and, and these were just drunken orgies. Now, the, some of the Greeks in the Corinthian church who had been converted in Corinth, that was their background, these drunken orgies. And some of them were, were still going down to that pagan love feast. Paul said, you can't do that. And that's why earlier on he deals with the thing about prostitutes. It was because of this temple of Aphrodite. So Paul is saying, hey, look, you can't come along and you know, come to the Lord's table, share in the love feast, if you're still going down to that other place, because you can't come to the table of the Lord and then go to the table of demons. So, so clearly, in 1 Corinthians 10, any which way you look at it, Paul is dealing with abuses of the Lord's Supper, whether it's the problem of people going down to the temple of Aphrodite for their love feasts as well, or whether it was the problems actually arising from when they actually came together and the selfishness and them not being in right relationship with each other. But the point is that what, what we've got here is that in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is clearly dealing with issues concerning when the church comes together on the first day of the week, all right, on Sundays. And so therefore we know that the context of Paul dealing with that issue begins here in chapter 10. And he starts off in chapter 10 and 11 by dealing with the problems surrounding the love feast, which if you like was one aspect of when the churches came together. And then he moves on to the other aspect and, 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 and all the abuses surrounding their open sharing time with everyone free to take part, because that's where all the gifts of the spirit were going wrong and, you know, and people were kind of, well, you know, just getting out of control and stuff like that. But the main point that we want to underline at the moment is that Paul commences his treatment or he commences addressing the problem surrounding the Lord's Day gathering in chapter 10. Now, therefore, go to the beginning of chapter 11.
And what we get in verse 3 um, down to verse 16 is Paul deals with this issue about the ladies having head coverings. Now, I don't want to go into the ins and outs of what the head coverings were, although I'm happy to go on record as saying that my understanding is that, um, you know, that this means that the ladies should have long hair and that for the sake of the angels, the goody angels, the demons as well, but for the sake of the angels, women need to have long hair as a sign of being under the authority of their husbands. Okay, And the important thing is that I want to get here is that what Paul is saying, he says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. Now, the only thing I want to take out of that is quite simply this. In 1 Corinthians 11, because he started in the previous chapter, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is dealing with issues surrounding when the church comes together as a church on the first day of the week. And indeed, this section here is sandwiched between the two sections where he deals with the problems surrounding the actual love feast. And here, he deals with another issue, and it was the whole one about what about veils and head coverings when we come together as a church. And so basically he's saying, or my understanding is he's saying, the women should have long hair, so they mustn't pray or prophesy. Well, hang on, pray or prophesy? What's the context? The Lord's Day Gathering. And we know from 1 Corinthians 14 that prayer, prophecy, these are the sorts of things, uh, they, they are among the various things that can be happening, that people can be sharing, contributing, when the church comes together. And so therefore, what it simply boils down to is this. When Paul turns to the issue of dealing with the gathering of the church on the Lord's Day, he assumes in chapter 11 that the women are taking verbal part. It's obvious. He just says, you need to have long hair, ladies, because that's a sign that you're under the authority of your husbands, that you recognise that the man is the head of the woman, as Jesus is the head of the man. So, therefore, if we follow through, once we get into 1 Corinthians 14, and of course, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul introduces the thing about the gifts of the Spirit, and he, he establishes that when a church comes together, it's like a body. And he says every part of the body needs to be working together. And of course, this, this chapter makes absolutely no sense at all in a situation where a church comes together for a worship service with someone leading from the front, where precisely everyone can't take part in it. The whole push in 1 Corinthians 12 in this picture that Paul gives of the body is that everyone gathered is free to actually take part and that no one part of the body is dominating or taking over. And, uh, you know, so I mean, you know, sort of like, you know, the idea of services, having services led from the front by somebody just could not be further from the way that the early church went about things. In fact, it's the exact opposite to what the early church did. And so therefore, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is is out, outlining that. Um, in 1 Corinthians 13, he, he, he deals with the thing about love and, 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 and then... In 1 Corinthians 14, he deals with the ground rules for the gifts because the Corinthians were getting it very wrong. They were obsessed with it, and Paul wants to, to keep them getting in, in context. But the point is, all this is pertaining to the gathering of the church together. And so in 1 Corinthians 14, you get all the rules for tongues, you get all the rules for prophecy and stuff like that. And of course, in verse 26, what, what shall we say then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn or an instruction, a revelation, a tongue and interpretation. You see, the whole point is for everyone to be taking part, no one leading it. This isn't in a religious building, sitting in rows with someone up the front doing it and everyone else being passive. This is sitting in someone's lounge, looking at each other, no one's leading it, well, someone is, Jesus is leading it uh, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the point is everyone being free to take part. And Paul is laying out the ground rules for how this works. And so therefore, when we get to the problem verse 
of the second part of verse 33 onwards, and we read, as in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches, well, we're immediately confronted with the, with the, 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 the fact that, that, that there's something here that doesn't quite seem to gel. Why would Paul say that the women have got to be silent when in, 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 in this gathering, when everyone's free to take part, why would he be saying that they've got to be silent when he's already, back in chapter 11, dealing with exactly the same circumstances, the Lord's Day gathering of the church, established that they need to have long hair so that when they pray and prophesy, they're not dishonouring their heads in any way, i.e. their husbands. And, and, and so, goodness, you know, I mean, is, is Paul totally contradicting himself here yet again within the space of a few verses. Well, as we saw with the uh, prophecy and tongues thing, you know, one being a sign and then the other being a sign, that, 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 that obviously it's not quite what it seems on the surface. And of course, what I want to show you is that um, just a few verses onwards, when, when Paul is, is, is talking about tongues, let's just read verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak, one at a time, as someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. So what Paul's saying there, look, if, you, if, if tongues are happening and there's no interpretation coming, if you've had a couple of tongues, no interpretation coming. He says, no more tongues then, because tongues without interpretation is daft. It's silly, all right? So, because no one understands it. Back to what we said earlier about being a sign for um, the unbelieving Jews, all right? But of course, if, if others come in, they'll, they'll think you're mad. And so the point is, Paul says, look, so be quiet. You tongue speakers, be quiet. Now, is he saying, sit down, be quiet, and I don't ever want to hear another thing from you in any of your church gatherings? No, he's talking about being silent in a particular circumstance. Uh, let's keep going. When he talks about prophecy and prophets, he says in verse 29, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. So, so, so what he's saying here is that if, if someone is bringing something from the Lord, but there's someone else clearly getting something as well, then let the first one stop and sit down and let the other one, as it were, carry on and take over. But is he saying, right, okay, then you stop bringing that and you don't, not another sound out of you the whole time? No, of course he's not. What he's dealing with here is he's talking about appropriate silences in appropriate circumstances. So therefore, if that's the case, we've seen women can pray and prophesy, and when he says, what should we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction. And of course, some people, they say, well, it does say when we come together, you know, what should we say, brothers? But of course, elsewhere, Paul just uses that term in a generic sense when he's clearly including the brothers and the sisters as well. It's just a, a, a generic term. And so the point is that here, when, when Paul is, is, is saying, look, you know, when you come together, uh, you know, we've already seen that the women can pray and prophesy. So, so therefore, if he's assuming that the women take part as well, then what is the circumstances whereby the women, by definition, have to remain silent. We've seen a time for tongue speakers to remain silent. We've seen a time with someone prophesying who should stop and, and, and therefore the implication is be silent. So when would it be that the women would need to be silent? Well, I think the key to understanding this is precisely the preceding verses, verse 29 through to the beginning um, of uh, verse 33. And it is when Paul is dealing with the whole area of prophecy and the rules for it. Now, we've got to understand that in the early church, the big difference, or one of the big differences between the Corinthian church, as it were, who Paul is writing to, and us, is that we have the completed word of God. Indeed, this letter was part of the emerging New Testament. Now, we have the whole lot. At the time of the early church, by definition, they did not have the entire New Testament. It was coming to them bit by bit, but it was much later that anyone had the whole lot. Now, therefore, for us, if we test 
a prophecy. How do we test it? We test it against the Word of God. But we can have the Word of God, as it were, tucked under our arms, and because we've got it in its entirety, we can test it against that. So to that extent, really not too much of a problem. But there was a problem that the early church had. They didn't have the whole of the New Testament. Therefore, if a revelation came through, if a prophecy came through, against what could they test it? And this was actually the problem. They did not have the whole New Testament uh, through which they could test prophecy as it came to them. Indeed, more than that, it could actually be the case that there were times when prophecy actually was bringing the Word of God itself. So for all we know, prophets might have prophesied literally things that were written elsewhere in various letters and stuff that were flying around and which eventually were compiled together in our New Testament. And they could have actually been prophesying these revelations, these new truths that had never been revealed before, but were now being revealed through the apostles, who of course had received all that truth from Jesus himself. And so the point was that the testing of prophecy was, was, was a, a very, very different matter than it is for us today. Now, the point is, if that is the case, then by definition, and I think it's interesting here, that Paul isn't just talking about prophecy, although he does, he says, you may all prophesy one by one, but he's particularly talking about prophets. And of course, elsewhere, he says, are all prophets? No. But we know we may all prophesy. So the point is, you may prophesy here and there, that doesn't make you a prophet. You may pray for someone to be healed here and there, and they're healed. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? But that doesn't necessarily make you a healer. A prophet is, is, is someone who is moving in that gift in an altogether different way, as a healer is moving in that gift in a, a very vastly different way to someone who maybe once or twice in their lives sees someone healed when they pray for them. And so the point is that here he's talking about actual prophets. And of course, in Ephesians, Paul talks about the church like built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And of course the point is he's not there talking about that a church has got to be planted by an apostle working with a prophet. It's talking about the word of God. The word of God was given to the original twelve. Well, minus Judas and, 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 and then Paul. And them, together with the prophets, were the means of, of bringing the word of God, the New Testament, into being. And so therefore the testing of this stuff would have been very, very different to us just testing a prophecy that comes today. And so because that, in effect, it was the establishing of doctrine, it, 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 it was more in that, that vein, as it were. Because, and you know, and of course elsewhere, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach, I have authority over men. Leadership is for men in the church. Leadership is a male preserve in the Christian church. And particularly here, had there been elders, they, you know, in this particular church at that time, they would have obviously played a very big part in the testing of prophecy. And therefore, because this was possibly more to do with establishing doctrine than our understanding of testing a prophecy now, prophecy today does not establish doctrine. It might repeat a doctrine, but then you've got to test it to make sure it's actually a biblical doctrine. But of course, in the early church, prophecy very possibly played a part in actually establishing doctrine. And by definition, that would be for the menfolk, because the whole thing about teaching... I mean, teaching isn't just for teachers either, but teaching is for menfolk. Paul said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men. And so therefore, in that circumstance, with that kind of testing of prophecy going on, it's important to understand that that would have been for the menfolk, and in particular for the elders. And so therefore, in that situation, the women were to remain silent. And indeed, Paul didn't even want them 
involving themselves, as it were, in that particular discussion as it was going on. They were free to contribute to it via their husbands once they got home, and the husbands could have brought back to the church anything that was said. But that was something where Paul wanted the men folk to be doing that. And of course, the thing is as well that if you had, a, you know, a situation where women were trying to, you know, sort of to lead in the same way that men, and for heaven's sake, you know, feminism certainly seems to be winning out even in the Christian church, doesn't it? Irrespective of what the Bible says. But the point is that even with questions, questions can be leading questions. And, and, and so it's very possible that, that there was some of that going on in the Corinthian church as well. In fact, I'm, I'm absolutely sure, particularly through the Greek women, that was going on in the Corinthian church. And so therefore Paul had to say, look, this, this is for the men folk and you ladies, I don't even want you asking questions in that regards. Leave that to the men folk. If you've got something to add, talk to your husband when you get home, um, and and then anything that you know is is important, he can he can bring back to the church, no problem. And so therefore, that that I think you know sorts out that what otherwise seems to be a difficult verse. But let me say, yeah, there there are churches that their understanding is that this you know that the women are to actually be verbally silent during that, that, that sharing time. Not that there are many churches that actually adhere <laughs> to um, you know, the biblical way of actually gathering together as a church, um, but, 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 but the important thing that I would say is that at least that is, although I don't agree with that, although I, I, I think that that's an incorrect understanding, that the women shouldn't partake verbally at all, I don't agree, that's not what I see in Scripture myself. But let me say that when people come to that conclusion and establish that practice in churches, at least they're doing that because they're taking the Word of God seriously. And I can respect that in the same way that pertaining to the head coverings. There are those who think that it literally should be a head covering, a doily or a scarf over the head. Now, again, that isn't my understanding. I think it's long hair. But again, when people do come to that understanding, they're coming to that understanding because they are taking Scripture seriously. And I respect that. What I don't respect in regards to these verses are when Christians hit up against them, just don't like them, and make them out as some irrelevance, you know, and just put it down to this is cultural. Irrelevant to us, cultural. Never mind the fact that there's not one word in the scripture of any of it that establishes this as being cultural. Quite the opposite, it's located when, you know, back in the Garden of Eden, when Paul writes to Timothy and says, I do not permit a woman to teach, have authority over men. He locates that because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And in 1 Corinthians 11, dealing with the head covering thing, it all goes back to Adam and, and Eve. It's got nothing to do with the culture of the day. So, so what I can't respect is when people just throw these verses away and, uh, you know, and just basically ignore them. Anyway, but uh, that's, that's, that's where, where we are as, as, as a church. So um, I hope that has uh, kind of sorted out these <coughs> sort of difficult bits um, in, in in 1 Corinthians 14. So we'll um we'll we'll continue next time.